just to get a feel for um, our familiarity with this book, how many of you have, I don't know, in the last year or so, ever even looked at 2 John? Just put your hand up. Okay, a couple. All right, well, I don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time on background, so what I'm going to try to do in an attempt to preach this whole book in one morning, and I'll keep you here till noon, um, is to just include it as we go, all right? But, but to get started here and understand what, what's the big idea with Second John, I had a question for you. I, I wondered, if you've ever wondered, why do people do what they do? Why do people do what they do? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, maybe you've, we're going scrolling through your news feed when you woke up this morning, you know, you pull a, like me, an alarm goes off, and what's the first thing you grab? Come on. Phone, right? And just bleary eyes. Okay, you know, going through and you see something, you think, what in the world made them do that? You know, maybe you have um, teenage kids, and they were explaining to you what they thought was really smart last night, and you're just thinking, um, no. <laughs> what, what, what in the world made you think that was a good idea. Or maybe you have a coworker or a friend or a roommate and they're just telling you what happened last week and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, why in the world did you do that? The reasons for human actions are incredibly complex. They are. And that's not just like throw away before you really hit somebody with something. It's, it's true, right? We're embodied souls. What does that mean? That means that our, our actions, our activities are always an intricate mixture of biological and spiritual factors. We're embodied souls. That's by God's design. And I think for that reason alone, humility demands that we never presume that we know, ha, 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 exactly why somebody else did something. All right? But we got to remember this, folks. The fact that we don't have comprehensive knowledge in any realm of life does not mean that we lack accurate knowledge, right? So, so we can understand part of something accurately even if we fail to grasp all there is to know. Does that make sense? That's really important. There are people who say, well, you don't know all that. Well, that's true. I don't know all of it, but you know what? I can know part of that accurately. I mean, some of you, I'll talk more about this later again, um, are going on a mission trip to Bolivia. You're leaving tomorrow, Right? I hope every one of you knows some Spanish words. I hope. But the fact that you don't know every Spanish word doesn't mean that the Spanish you do know is wrong. And the fact that we don't know every reason people do what they do doesn't mean we have nothing to say about a significant part of why people do what they do. And over and over again, the Bible identifies one issue, one factor, one cause, one spiritual influence more than any other as the primary reason why we do what we do. What's that? What do you believe about God? That's the explanation. What, what you believe about God, who you believe he is or is not, over and over again, the Bible points to that. The answer to that question as the primary explanation for why you do what you do. And, and the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 gives us a great example of this. So, so he specifically wrestles with the question, why do people do bad things? Right? What, what causes us to do what's wrong 
even when we know it's wrong. And the Apostle Paul points to, he concludes ultimately, that you can explain that in terms of what we believe or refuse to believe about God. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Follow here. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They sinned, we sin, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why, why do we do that? Why do we sin? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love how A.W. Tozer says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. Why did he say that? What's the most important thing about you because it's the one thing that, that guides and influences and directs the conduct of your life more than anything else, whether or not you realize that. Here's the bottom line. There is an inseparable connection, friend, between what you believe, especially what you believe about God, and how you live. Okay, we can miss that because it's so simple, but that's profound. There is an inseparable connection. You cannot separate what you believe, especially what you believe about God, and how you live. And what that means is you can always work backwards, all right, let's put this into practice, from how we live and discern what do we believe. And that principle, what we believe determines how we live, is exactly what John is putting to work in this letter. Everything he says here, it can seem like buckshot all over the place, but everything he says here presumes that. And everything he says here applies that because John knows you can't separate your life from your doctrine. You can't separate how we live from what we believe. Doing what's right always starts with believing what's true. So what does that mean in practical terms? Well, in 2 John, I think it means at least three things. These are the... The headings I'm going to work with this morning. How does he apply the fact that what we believe determines how we live? Three ways. Number one, our love is sustained by the truth. Verses one through three. Number two, our obedience is an expression of the truth. Verses four to six. And number three, we must devote ourselves to guarding the truth. Verses seven through eleven. To three points, I'm going to linger primarily on the first one, and then we're going to move faster through the second two, okay? So point number one, our love is sustained by the truth, verses one through three. Our love is sustained by the truth. Here's a little background I told you I would give you, okay? So second John is different than first John in that where first John seems to be a more general letter written to circulate among a group of churches, second John appears to be written to a specific congregation. So if you look at verse 1, the title elder, don't be thrown off by that, that's the author of the letter, the Apostle John. And, and the elect lady, I mean, that's a strange phrase. How many, when's the last time you wrote an email and were like, 
dear elect lady. I mean, that, that can just seem foreign. Don't be thrown by that, okay? That's the recipient of the letter, the church to whom John is writing, okay? And both those titles are intensely relational. That's important. The former reminds the recipients, the elder, why does he say identify himself as the elder? He's reminding the people who got this letter that he has God-given authority to shepherd their souls as one of their spiritual leaders. And, and the latter, why does he call them the elect lady? Well, that reminds the recipients of the letter, the people who are getting this letter, that their spiritual life, their, their very existence as a church is not ultimately a product of the eldering or pastoring activity of John, but of the electing activity of God. God is the one who chose them for himself. God is the one who called them to himself. And God is the one who will receive all the glory and honor at the end of the age for reconciling this church to himself through the power of the gospel. King's way, there's application here for us. I'm still in verse 1, okay? What's the application? Well, when, when difficulty and suffering come our way as a church, we have to remember our spiritual identity as the people of God. We've got to remember that, okay? We're not defined by our reputation in the eyes of the local news media. We're not defined by the treatment we receive from the governing authorities. You know, whatever comes our way in the next 50 years. Okay, we're not even defined by the record of our personal obedience, Okay, our, our identity as a church is built on one thing and one thing only. We are the chosen people of God. That, that's our identity as a church. And, and so in every situation, every trial, every difficulty, no matter how, how painful or scandalous things get, God has chosen us to be a people for his own possession. We've got to remember that. We're elected, we're chosen by God. He's, he's granted us an identity, a dignity, a, a purpose, a glory, a value that nothing and no one in this world can ever take away from us. And that, that God-given identity, that dignity, who, who are we? Oh, we're just a bunch of random people that decide to meet together on a Sunday morning. No, you are the elect chosen people of God, okay? That identity, that draws out of John unbelievable affection for this church because he sees on this specific local church a mark of the divine the hand of God but, but it's not just John who loves them look, look back at verse 1 so do who? all who know the truth love them the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I, the elder, love in the truth. The elder loves them, but, but it's not just the elder who loves them, not only I, but also all who know the truth. So you've got a local church loved by John and a whole bunch of other Christians. Okay, that's what we're working with. Now, let's think about how this applies to us, all right? We need to be honest here. There are times when loving one another, even as Christians, in the church is really, really hard. Really hard. And, and if that's never been hard for you, um, you're deluded. Now, <laughs> you haven't lived long enough, okay? Because somebody will offend you. 
Somebody will offend you. Somebody will hurt you. Maybe the one person that you felt like you were really tight with in the church just up and moves away, goes to another church. Okay, whatever the reason, loving the brothers and sisters around you stops coming naturally to you in the way it used to. Okay, that's just inevitable if you live long enough. And you don't feel close to people. You know, it's, it's harder to engage in community. It's, it's harder to put your heart out there to be vulnerable and allow other people to care for you even as you care for them. Everything within you in these situations, it feels like pulling away. And you know, you, you can find yourself even thinking, how can I keep loving and investing in these people when, when it feels like there's zero emotional affection for them in my heart? You know, I, I start with our, our corporate love for one another because that's where John starts here. But, but the challenge of loving other Christians isn't just a church thing. I mean, it, it plays out in the church, but it's also a personal thing. So, so maybe there's a Christian friend or family member or a, a spouse in your life who feels really hard to love right now. And, and part of you says, you know, I, I know I ought to love them, but there's, there's little to nothing in your heart that actually feels like loving them. And so you don't want to fake it. I mean, that feels like the worst thing you could do. At least I don't want to become a hypocrite. So what do you do? We just try to exist alongside them and hope that at some point your feelings change. I mean, we can, we can live there, folks. And to whatever degree that's, that's your present experience on any level toward the church, toward particular Christians in your life, okay, we need to pay careful attention to verse 2. Because it's in this verse, look at verse 2, that, that John reveals the enduring source, the underlying power that sustains his love for this local church and all these other Christians' love for this local church. Okay, why does, why does John love them? Why do all these other Christians love them? Verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if we can get what John in only two verses is communicating to us here, it will radically transform the way you love other Christians. Okay, so listen, listen. John's reminding us in no uncertain terms that the wellspring of genuine love for one another in the family of God is not our behavior our personality, our temperament, our social status, our educational level, our ethnicity, or the color of our skin. It is our shared experience and embrace of the truth of the gospel. That's the wellspring for our love for one another, okay? Who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That truth is the foundation of our love for one another. We don't ever get the luxury of moving beyond that friend. And it is when loving one another feels hardest that we most need to direct our attention back to the foundation of our love and the wellspring of our love. Because it's the truth that brings us together as a church. It's the truth that binds us together as a church. And it's the truth alone that has the power to keep us together as a church, come what may. Okay, in other words, Only the truth of the gospel has the power to sustain 
our love for one another as Christians. Why, why do I say that? Why do I say that only the truth of the gospel has the power to sustain, remember that's the first point, truth sustains our love for one another as Christians? Well, two reasons. Two things the gospel does. First, it reminds us that we have a common need. What's our common need? I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and so do all of you. <laughs> all right? We share that in common. Though I'm up on the stage talking, you're sitting listening, we all have that in common. Okay? It's the first thing the gospel does. It reminds us we have a common need. Here's, here's the second thing, okay? The truth of the gospel reminds us we don't just have a common need, we have a common provision. So God in Jesus Christ, through his life, death, resurrection, has addressed our need, met our need, by making a way for all of us to be reconciled to God. We have a common need. We have a common provision. So, so how does that affect our love for the Christian next to us? Or the church God's called you to? Well, here's what it means, very specifically, okay? It means you love the Christian next to you not because of who they are in and of themselves. You love the Christians next to you because of who they are in Christ. A chosen, beloved, and redeemed child of the living God. You don't love the person next to you. You don't love your Christian spouse because of who they are in and of themselves. You love them because of who they are in Christ. And, and, and yet, I say that, and I can hear the voice of protest. And it's, it's coming out of me, okay? Like, I can hear it. I can hear it. But they're not treating me the way Christians are supposed to treat me, right? They're not loving me the way the people of God are supposed to love. Why should I love them if they're not loving me? Well, look back at verse 2. Back at verse 2. Notice John doesn't say here, we love one another, because we abide in the truth. Why does he say that? Because to say that would be to direct our gaze, to ground our love in the ever-changing nature of our personal behavior. Okay? Our subjective response to the truth. He, he's not pointing us there. Now, now listen, are we supposed to respond to the truth as Christians? Are we supposed to abide in the truth? Are we supposed to live every moment of our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel and loving one another as God in Christ has loved us? The answer is yes, absolutely. But you know who's never going to do that perfectly? All of us. Starting with your pastors. Okay? We're never going to do that perfectly. Who among us can claim to perfectly abide in the truth? And perfectly love one another. I, I can't. You can't. So, so follow me here. If our love for one another depends on our ability to abide in the truth, then we are in a heap of trouble. We're, we're building a house on sand. But that's not what John says. Praise God, it's not what he says. Okay? We don't, look back at verse 2. We don't love one another because we faithfully abide in the truth. We love one another because the truth faithfully abides in us. That's what he's saying. It's the opposite of how we tend to think. John 14, verse 16. Jesus said, and I will ask the Father. This is amazing. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. John wrote that. You think that's connected to verse 2? Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. So, so remember this, friend. When, when you're deciding, when you're deciding whether to love another Christian who has hurt or disappointed you in some way, remember that the most significant thing about that person is not what they've done or not done to you. The most significant thing about that person is what your God and their God has done for them. He chose them. He called them. You might feel like unfriending them on Facebook, but King Jesus saved them. He saved them. Okay? He's even now at work purifying them, even though you feel like they are booking in the opposite direction. And through the spirit of truth, that person, that Christian that's hard for you to love, is nothing less than the dwelling place of God. Oh, that's convicting. It's convicting, and, and it means that we, we can't love people because they faithfully abide in the truth. We must love people because the truth faithfully abides in them. And when it feels impossible to, to see them for who they are in Christ and love them accordingly, remember that the same spirit of truth that dwells in them dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit is even now eager, ready, and willing to empower you to love them the way God has loved you in Jesus. How do I know that? Romans 5 verse 4. Check out this promise. This is a promise for every Christian who is navigating relational suffering and struggling to walk in love, okay? What's God say? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That, that is a precious promise, all right? Now, now break that down, because that can just be like God talking, feel irrelevant, okay? How does the Holy Spirit pour God's love into our hearts? Well, he takes the word of God, look at verse 3, and uses it to remind us of the grace God's given us in Jesus, the mercy God's given us in Jesus, and the peace that will always be with us because of Jesus. In Christ, friend, when you become a Christian, it's as if God takes a dump truck and just unloads it without ceasing, grace, mercy, and peace just pouring out into your life. He never calls you to give to a fellow Christian something that he is not relentlessly dumping into you. He's a good God. He pours his love into our hearts. He gives you the grace you need to be gracious. He gives you the mercy you need to be merciful. He gives you the peace you need to be a peacemaker in every situation. You're rich in Jesus. That's how we can love. That's how we can love. Okay? Our love is sustained by the truth for that reason. And if you hear nothing else in this point, hear this. The secret of genuine, enduring love for other people isn't found in other people. It's not even found in yourself. It's found in Christ. Because it's, it's Christ, it's the truth of the gospel that enables us to, to see one another for who we are in Jesus and to love one another because of the way we've been loved in Jesus. That's so important, okay? G genuine love corporately, individually, it's, praise God, it is never sustained or grounded in the ebb and flow of the tide of our emotions. It's not. And so when you think, why should I love my church? Why should I love 
these Christians in my life. Don't look first to how you feel about them. Look to the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Friend, you learn to love your church, love your Christian friends because of who they are in Christ, and you have found a wellspring for your love that will never run dry. It's going to be with you forever. The truth sustains our love, okay? Our love is sustained by the truth. That's, that's the first way John reminds us that what we believe determines how we live. And that's just the first three verses. Point number two. Our obedience is an expression of the truth. If our love is sustained by the truth, our obedience is an expression of the truth. Look at verse 4. I rejoice greatly, John writes, to find some of your children, the members of the church, walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now that's a really interesting phrase. Walking in the truth. Why? Because, you know, typically we think of like, well, Walking is something I do in my shoes. You know, you walk in shoes, <laughs> you know the truth. Um, and if you've never been in church before and you hear a phrase like walking in the truth, that can just seem like, okay, whatever, points for poetic license. Well, well, John is very deliberate in speaking of the truth as something we walk in, where the commandments of God is something we walk in, so much so that in these middle verses here, that phrase, walk in the truth, walk in God's commands, it shows up three times. Verses four to six. So I want us to slow down and think very carefully, what does it mean to walk in the truth? What is John telling us when he says, let's walk in the truth? I think he's reminding us of three things. Okay, number one, number one, Christianity isn't a religious option among other equally valid religious options. It's not the case. Okay? It's the truth. Christianity is the truth, which means all competing beliefs and worldviews are what? Lies. They're lies. We must not apologize for that, friends. It's getting harder to say that in our culture and not feel sheepish and ashamed and apologetic. But you know why we need to be willing to say that? Because it's true. Because there is such a thing as walking in the truth, and that implies very clearly, in no uncertain terms, there is such a thing as walking in a lie. When he exhorts us to walk in the truth, he's reminding us that Christianity isn't just a religious option. It's the truth. So when John says, walk in the truth, please hear this, he's not saying, be true to yourself or live in keeping with what you think is true. He's reminding us that there are beliefs that are objectively true. And there are beliefs that are objectively false. And he's saying, make sure that your life is lived in response to the beliefs that are objectively true. Here's the second thing he's saying. Walk in the truth. He's reminding us that the question of which beliefs are true, what's over here in your space, Matthew, it's not a mystery. What's true isn't a mystery. Why not? Because the truth has been made known. The truth has been clearly revealed in what? The commands we've been given by the Father. Verse 4, rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So what does that mean? 
What does that mean? Well, it means that the commands God has given us in his word are not arbitrary statements of what we're allowed to do or not allowed to do. They're not that. They can feel like that, but they're not that. What what are God's commands? They establish and distinguish, establish and distinguish what is true from what is false. The kind of life that is built on the truth from the kind of life that's built on a lie. And I think it is really easy to forget that that's what God's commands are if you're a teenager or a young adult especially who's grown up in the church. So so I'm going to speak to you very directly for just a minute here, okay? The Bible can start to feel like a bunch of random fences. What do I mean by that? Well, a a list of what I'll call do-not-cross lines... And the Christian life becomes this sort of game where you try to have as much fun as possible without crossing any of the lines. I won't ask you to raise your hand, (laughs) but I think a lot of us have been there. I think some of us who are older, if we're honest, have been there. Okay, That is not what it means to follow Jesus. That's not what it means to follow Jesus, okay? Following Jesus means looking to the commands of God as revealed in the word of God to tell you what is true in every situation and then choosing to embrace the truth and walk in the truth by submitting to God's commands. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We're not playing the do not cross fences game. We are running hard after Christ. Remember that. I'm going to just illustrate this. I keep coming back to Africa because it's on my mind. I'm going to spend some 30 hours flying over the next two weeks. I'm so worried about it, I even bought a new travel pillow <laughs> as part of this missions trip. And, and I was thinking this morning, I, you know, what would happen if I'm on the plane, Ethiopian Airlines... And the, and the pilot gets on the speakerphone while we're, we're waiting to take off in Dulles and says, good morning, folks. Hey, the runway lights indicate that if we go straight ahead, we're going to have plenty of runway to get airborne. But you know what? I'm sick and tired of flying that way. And I've convinced myself that if we go sideways, will still go airborne and have a great time doing it. Now, I know some of you see about 50 yards away a large concrete sound barrier. Please hear me. That's an illusion. It's a mirage created by the heat on the runway. We're really going to be just fine. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. If I happen to hear that, and I am not in an exit seat, the person in the exit seat just got lifted up, set in the aisle, the exit door's out, I'm gone. <laughs> Why am I leaving the plane, okay? Because the lights on the runway reflect what is true. <laughs> they do. They mark out the path that an airplane must take in order to do what it's been made to do, Mr. Pilot making more money than I ever will, okay? And, and to convince yourself that going sideways will work is to believe a lie. And telling yourself over and over again that it will work doesn't change the fact that it won't. (laughs) It won't. Friends, God's commands are not arbitrary expressions of his authority. Okay, They mark out for us the path of life and blessing 
because they identify for us what is true about God and what is true about the world he created. God's commands are a gift. They're not arbitrary, random, power trip stuff. They're the lights on the runway of your life that tell you how to live as you were made to live. Everything else is just craziness. It won't work. It's a lie. John reminds us when he says, verse 4, walk in the truth that God's commands are not just right, because God says so, though he does, but they're true. They're true. Here's the third thing verse 4 teaches us, okay? Children walking in the truth, that reminds us that the Christian life isn't just about knowing what's true. It's about living it walking in it, such that our obedience becomes a powerful expression of the truth. Remember our first point, that that our love is sustained by the truth. Well, the second thing he's reminding us here is that our obedience, our obedience is a powerful expression of the truth. James chapter 1 verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God doesn't call us, friends, who merely know what is true. He calls us to prove that we do know what is true by walking in the truth. Such such that our obedience becomes an expression of the truth to everybody around us. And arguably, one of the most important ways you can tell if you're walking in the truth, if you're a doer of the word, not just to hear, is is if your life demonstrates, look at verse 5, a pattern of sacrificial love for other Christians. That's the litmus test here. Love one another. That's how you know if you're walking the truth. And and lest we think that there are times where we're loving other people, means compromising our obedience to God's commands. John reminds us of something in verse 6, look there, that he said over and over again in the book of 1 John. And this is love, what is love? That we walk according to his commandments. So, what does that mean? It means that God will never, ever, ever tell you to do something in the name of loving someone that violates a single command in the word of God. Never. It, it doesn't matter if that choice feels loving to you. It doesn't matter if it, it feels loving to them. If a choice you're about to make or have made violates the word of God, then you are no, in no way possible are you actually loving that person. You are hating them whether it feels that way or not. You're not practicing love, you're practicing hatred. The only way we love the people around us is if we obey God's commands and help them do the same. When we live like that, friends, our our obedience, our loving obedience, it becomes a powerful expression of the truth. So remember the big idea. Okay, the way we live is connected to what we believe. So so for the Christian, that means our, our love is sustained by the truth. There's a connection between the truth and our love. And for the Christian, that means our obedience is an expression of the truth. There's a connection between the truth and our obedience. So love's connected to the truth, what we believe. Obedience is connected to the truth, what we believe. And here's the final point. 
which is so important given the first two. We must devote ourselves to guarding the truth. Verses 7 through 11. Now, now why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because like the 21st century is, is a lot like the first century. In that we live in a world where, where all manner of people have all manner of different ideas about what is true and seek to convince us accordingly. And in that, in that world, we have to devote ourselves to, to guarding the truth. So look at verse 7. John specifically warns here against false teachers who were seeking to convince this church that the incarnation was an illusion. They were failing to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that that was a prominent first century heresy. That, that maybe this dude Jesus was born, I'll grant that because he created a major ruckus, but, but there's no way that that was the eternal Son of God in human flesh. I mean, really? Come on. That was a major first century debate, heresy. And, and you can look at that and think, oh, I'm great, John. I'm not deceived. I know Jesus Christ came in flesh. Like, I celebrate Christmas. I get it. <laughs> well, slow down. Because I think on the surface, the, the, the controversies in our world today is gender binary or fluid. Example. Can feel radically different than the debates in the first century. But I would argue that the underlying issue is exactly the same. What do I mean by that? Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? That reference is off. Don't be distracted by that. All right? Just like when we were singing earlier and the, we had some lyric trouble, don't let that distract you. Jesus is still here, okay? So I'll read that again because this is really important. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say the prophets. And then Jesus looks at them and asks this question. But who do you say that I am? That issue has never changed. Who do you say Jesus is? That was the controversy in the first century, and that is still the same controversy in the 21st century. And it's not just a controversy, a question for people out there, friend. It is a question for all of us in here. Who do we say Jesus is? Because how you answer that question reveals whether or not you are guarding this truth, the truth of the gospel that our love depends on and our obedience is meant to express. So the debate is always changing, but the issue is the same. Who is Jesus? Is he the son of God to whom we owe our, our every breath and to whom we will one day give an account or is he not? Is he the Christ who, who lived, died, and rose from the grave to rescue us from sin? Or is he not? 
Because if, if he is those things, and the collective witness of Scripture and world history and human experience testify to the fact that he is, then it's the height of folly to ignore what Jesus has to say about the way we manage our money or express our sexuality or invest our time. Look at verse 9. John couldn't be more clear here. It comes to this question of who is Jesus and whether or not we will believe what the Bible, the Lord of Scripture, reveals him to be, verse 9, everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I have to confess, I, I'm not a big fan of antiques. <laughs> um, in general, I like things that are new and clean and polished and antiques are often not that though though I understand that some people really love them but but friends in a world where we tend to crave what is new and we can't wait for the 10th anniversary iPhone we have to remember this following Christ means clinging to things that are old and not letting go not letting go because it's, it's in Jesus, it's in the gospel, the old, old story, that God has most fully revealed himself. And so if you ignore the commands of Christ, then you're rejecting God himself. But if you abide in the commands of Christ, if you live in light of what he says is true, then what will happen? You will have relationship with, look at the end of verse 9, both the Father and the Son. So, so very practically, what does guarding the truth of the gospel look like? I think that's one of those things that is easy to say, oh yeah, I'm all about guarding the truth of the gospel. I firmly believe and refuse to let go of the fact that in the past, Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave to do some cool stuff between me and God. It's a lot more work than that. Why do I say that? Because taking care to not drift from the truth of the gospel includes taking care that we don't drift from the implications of the gospel. The gospel isn't just a historic fact collection that you reach a point in your life where, yep, check box. I believe that's true. Thank you, Jesus. No, the, the gospel echoes with implications for every area of your life as long as you live. And it's those implications that we have to guard, arguably, just as fiercely as the historical facts. So what do I mean by that? Well, this week, some of you are going to be tempted to fear. Tempted to fear. It's going to be easy for you to drift away from believing that God knows your needs and will be a faithful provider because he's a good father. It's going to be easy for some of you to drift from that, okay? Drift from that is drift from the gospel. All right? Some of you will be tempted to lust. It, it'll be easy for some of us to, to drift away from believing that there's infinitely greater joy in honoring God with our sexuality than in satisfying the momentary desires of our flesh. You, you drift into that, friend, and you are drifting away from the gospel. So some of us will be tempted to anger. You know, I will. Tempted to anger. It, it'll be easy to drift away from believing that, that God is sovereign in every situation and that he's, he's working all things together for good. When John says in verse 8, watch yourselves lest you drift from abiding in the truth of Christ, that's the kind of stuff he's talking about. 
He's addressing these situations because those are the situations where we're most often tempted to stop abiding in the truth of Christ, to stop believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and what that says about all those areas, fear, anger, sexuality, and live accordingly. There's a connection between what we believe and how we live. And nothing in the realm of what you believe is more important or determinative in shaping how you live than how you answer the question, who is Jesus? That's the truth we have to guard. What he reveals himself to be in Scripture through the commands of God, we must cling to and refuse to let go of. Because the call to follow Christ is not a call, please hear this, to universal, undiscriminating acceptance of anything people say is true in the name of love. That is not Christianity. It's not. We have to test every assertion, every assumption, every claim on your newsfeed or in the paper in the perfect light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and refuse to accept what is obviously false. And by the way, that's not called intolerance. That's called discernment and wisdom, which is sorely lacking in this day. For the recipients of this letter to conclude, guarding the truth meant refusing to support the efforts of false teachers. You may have seen that in verse 10 and 11. By welcoming them into the community of the church. And and the warning in verse 8 to watch ourselves, to hold fast to Christ, certainly includes evaluating what people believe out there. But friend, you know where the call to watch starts? It doesn't start with analyzing your newsfeed. It starts with analyzing your heart. What do I believe in here about Jesus? Because I think it's really easy to take pot shots online about the lies about Jesus that are circulating all over the place. I think it is much harder and ultimately far more important to discern the lies about Jesus that you are believing in your own heart. And we have to begin there and refuse to move on from there. So if verse 8 warns us, exhorts us to do anything, friend, it exhorts us to do this, to take care that we don't become so preoccupied with watching our culture that we stop watching ourselves. That is so important. You cannot separate what you believe from how you live. That's all over the book of 2 John. And it plays out in different ways. It plays out in the fact that our love is sustained by the truth. You cannot love genuinely apart from believing what is true about the gospel. And our obedience as Christians is an expression of the truth. You can't separate love from truth. You can't separate obedience from truth. And because of that, what do we need to do? We need to guard the truth. That's where he ends. That's why I exhort us to do the same. So let's pray and ask for God's help to do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a bracing word. I thank you for a bracing word because it gets up in our face, it pokes its finger in realms of life and thought that we would rather keep in the dark. Lord, it's not fun to think about 
whether we're really loving people. It's not easy to think about whether we're really walking in the truth. And you know how hard it is in the age we live in to to guard the truth. And so, Lord Jesus, with my brothers and sisters, I, I stop right now and I ask for power from on high to remember that no matter what part of life we're talking about, it comes down to what we believe. And I pray, Father, that you would make us humble enough that we're willing to recognize that behind our sins, behind our even our unwise choices, there's a fight to believe what is true and reject what is false. Lord, I pray you'd help us to see our our life that way, that we would go into this week armed with your word, clinging to the truth, to discern very carefully what is true from what is false. And I pray, Father, especially for those of us who are prone to, to know what you say in your word, but to feel like it's just arbitrary power trip stuff. Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would bring a new confidence that the commands of God are true and right. They mark out the runway of blessing. King Jesus, only you can do these things. Thank you for pushing us downfield in that direction with your word today. May you continue.